I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We pray the true and living God will be here with us uh, amidst all my faults and failures and send his spirit to reveal the truth to you, whatever it may be, and that the falsehoods that I uh, may present will be forgotten. Uh, by now, most of you know that we have launched our own television network 24-7 19.3 KPDR here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Take a look. Now, uh, just to give you the lowdown, as my friend Derek would put it, uh, the KPDR's antenna, which is up on Kessler Mountain, got struck by lightning, I believe, on Sunday. Could have been Saturday. And they are working feverishly to bring it back. So if you're smashing your TV over the top and you're shaking your antenna, don't. It's the whole station got blown out by a strike of lightning, and they are hiking up there, pack mules. They're trying to get up there, maybe even a helicopter, I've heard to try to fix the antenna, so bear with us. I can't overemphasize how willing we are to air Christian pastors who are teaching the Bible, preferably verse by verse. Please take the time to contact your pastor here in the Salt Lake Valley and see if they are willing to present their teachings on the network. Unlike other Christian television stations, we do not charge the pastor or presenter to, uh, to air their stuff uh, but we rely on viewers and who appreciate the network for their support. Trust me, it's not a money-making model, but it does free the pastors up to teach the word without fear and unencumbered and not have to worry about paying for it. So uh, it's a different model, we know, but if your church or pastor is interested, have them email us at sean at aletheamedia.com or call us at 888-868-4686 and leave a message, we will get back to you and tell you how we'll get you on television. Well, I guess the largest convention in the world discussing Book of Mormon evidence was held last week in Orem, Utah, a movie theater there. I wanted to attend, but I could not stomach the thought of listening to a bunch of adult people postulate and prevaricate over myths and fables and legends regarding Mormonism. Anyone who knows anything about Mormonism knows that they are, as a people, kind of gullible. And I, and I say that I was one of them and gullible too. The whole play, the Book of Mormon in New York, is based off the gullibility of the people. And uh, the, the LDS are just pro, prone to flights of fancy 
and exaggeration and myth-making. As a former member, I bought into many of these Mormonicious myths, including that the Ark of the Covenant that you read about in the Old Testament is in the basement of one of the temples, probably the Salt Lake, uh, that Brigham Young ran into Cain while on horseback, that there are three Nephites who do farm work, etc., for the faithful uh, in the LDS Church, and other things like Robert Redford secretly joined the church, and on and on and on and on. Well, people who make a life studying myths and fables say that communities and groups use myths as a means to promote the faith and to keep their beliefs and efforts alive among the congregates to give believers in the myths feelings of superiority because the rest of the world doesn't know about this myth that they are privy to and the standards of truth or the substantiated elements of their faith are lacking. They're not sufficient to sustain them. So myths make a place in a person's heart or in a people's heart. I get this with Mormonism uh, and myths proliferate in Mormonism. And in the Christian community, when we've done shows on Mormonism, the Christians laugh and laugh and laugh over the myth-making in the Mormon church. But do we ever look at our own house? Just the other day, I was teaching at one of our gatherings and somebody who loves the Lord made the statement that Jesus' blood came only from the father, not from the mother. The thing that made it difficult to complicate matters is that this person said that uh, science proves that human beings' blood comes only from the father and use this to kind of justify that Jesus' blood came only from the father to not the mother. Uh, intimating that if his blood did come from the mother, then he would have sin in his blood. And so there's been this thing concocted that the blood came from the father. I let her know that her observations were the product of a man or men, and that caused some consternation. Why do Christians feel the need to flock toward myths to substantiate our walk? and to support our faith? Why do we run after the salacious and use it to prop ourselves up? Part of the reason is uh, I think Christians are taught fables by pastors who have been taught fables, who were taught fables and taught fables back and back and back. Ever since I've been teaching the Bible, I have taught at least five times, probably more like 10, that the high priest in ancient Israel, before entering into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood, had a rope tied around his waist so that when he went into the Holy of Holies while he was doing the work, if he passed out or died, nobody would go back in there and get him, but would pull him out by the rope and I have, so that they wouldn't defile the Holy of Holies. It's not true at all. It's a myth that's been propped up And it didn't exist, nothing about that myth existed prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it can't be substantiated by any record of the Jews or the Christians. I repeated it because a dear brother who's done so much good for the Lord, Chuck Smith, taught it to me. And he learned it from somebody else. And so we just keep repeating these things and we believe them. And the thing is, we want truth. We want to know the truth at all costs, and we're not going to settle for something that is not true, even if it tends to promote the faith. There have been people who say, listen, if a lie will promote the faith, we can use it. That's not true. That's a terrible way to look at things. Also, Christian myths seem to thrive best when based on an element of truth while ignoring other factors that would make the faith-promoting part of the myth less impressive if those other factors were included. Let me give you an example. I remember when people were getting all excited back in 2008 over a pastor who was teaching about a thing called laminin. You may have heard about it. It's a biochem. In biochem, it's known as a glycoprotein in the human body. And the pastor, he showed slides. He held big things, and there's a video out about the laminin, and he would show a slide, a photograph of what the laminin looked like, and it was a lowercase t. 
And this protein acts truly as a glue to hold the human body together. And then the pastor would get up and he would cite, you know, Colossians 1, 16, 17, which says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him, all things consist. And so the pastor would shows that, show this laminin figure of these proteins, these glycoproteins, and it having the cross in it. And he taught, listen, this is, it's through the cross that the human body is held together and the, and the masses went nuts. And you add some taglines in like, uh, listen, creators always leave their mark and the guy would pack them in. The trouble is the pastor, from what I can tell, helped fabricate a myth by leaving out some very important data to his presentation, data that should have been included so that you could see the whole picture. For example, it is true that glycoprotein laminin does hold cells of the human body together uh, and that it can appear in the shape of a lowercase t uh, or a cross. Uh, what is also true is that not, it's, it's not the only protein that holds the human body together. There's others that are formed in a different way. And glycoprotein is constantly changing shapes so that it can do its job. And so what the audiences didn't know when he would show the glycoprotein in the shape of the lowercase t is that the pastor used only one photograph of dozens, if not hundreds, that show glycoprotein in different shapes. But he used the one that shows the lowercase t. Sometimes the glycoprotein's broken up and the arms of the t go different directions or are detached. Sometimes they all curve into circles and so it looks like that. Sometimes they, don't, they, 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 they adapt so that they can serve as the glue. And since a basic shape in biology is going to be a line intersecting with another at an opposite direction, you're going to be able to find those shapes and things. And it's not that it's not in the shape of a T. It is in certain shapes, of shapes, certain um, places of glycoprotein, but not constantly. There's all kinds of different shapes of it. Additionally, you know, it's thought that Christ died on a ta. It's called a ta. That's, that's the uppercase T. If that was true, and most scholars believe that's true, not on the Christian symbol T, but on the uppercase T, then it takes the whole premise of the pastor's presentation and proves that it is kindly based on myth. And if you're gonna be really fair, there are other symbols too that are found in biochem. For instance, the swastika can be seen in biochem too. So you got to bring up, and there's also sixes, which are kind of uh, anathema to the Christian faith that can be found in biochem too. So if you're going to have this, show the swastika, show the sixes. I I'm bringing this up because why do we do this? Is our faith in him not enough? Is his word not enough? Apparently not. We need shows, men tearing telephone books apart by the power of Jesus and the like. I suppose the point is faith alone doesn't seem to sustain us anymore. So the myths and the tales proliferate. Uh, I've had people actually almost yelling in my face that we found Noah's Ark. We found it. And, uh, and isn't the spirit enough? Do we need to find Noah's Ark? How about the Shroud of Turin? I mean, that is just, it's a traveling circus, the Shroud of Turin. Is it real? Maybe. Is it not? Maybe not. I don't care. I mean, if God wanted us to have physical evidences of Christ that apparent, he would have provided it long ago. I mean, why didn't he keep the cross standing where it stood the whole time so we could go by and see it and give us these physical proofs like the shroud is supposed to do? Because it's not his way. He wants us to walk by faith. It's not an on the nose, this is the proof and we're gonna overcome the world with it. It is, we're never gonna have it that way. We are going to see smackings of God's hand in things. We're gonna to have to trust that he is there. He's not gonna give us this, this stuff. Listen, we've all heard of cheap grace. We know what that means in the Christian community. I would call these things cheap faith. 
And I would bet we're gonna see more and more of it as the years pass until people in the body or in the churches say enough's enough. Let's just, let's just get to the fact that we believe Jesus rose from the dead. We're gonna put our faith and trust in him. Nature shows us that cheap faith is oxymoronic, really. It's, um, it's like acting naturally or kosher ham. Uh, it, it's oxymoronic. It's not legit. It's a myth, just like the pro- products that cheap faith uh, creates, you know? So think about that. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pray uh, for your spirit Many uh, believe that the things we talk about here are um, not of you. They may be right. Uh, We pray that those things that are will be revealed to those who are seeking truth and that we will um, ignore the teachings of man, uh, whether they come from me or anybody else, and that we will seek you in spirit and in truth through the study of your word and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue our investigation of the topic of God, and we're going to wrap up what I believe the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. I'm not asking you again to believe me. All I'm asking you to do is think. I'm asking you to uh, not trust me, follow me, or anything else, but think. Examine. Explore your faith. Because God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth, not just people who will embrace anything that comes down the road. Now listen, I openly admit that I may be wrong about some of the things we're gonna talk about. I'm just sharing with how I see them. I'm not alone with how I see them, but there are plenty of people who disagree. They may be right. I don't mind if they are, but I don't believe that it's views or theology that saves a man or a woman. I am certain that what does save us is a heartfelt devotion to God by and through Christ Jesus, his shed blood, and how people respond to that heartfelt faith toward God and their fellow man. We're gonna get to soteriology probably next week, and that sort of leads us into it. But let me wrap up why I reject the man-made term Trinity as it is used to describe God and why specifically tonight, I reject the teaching that the Holy Spirit is a separate and distinct person, eternally existing within the term Trinitas, okay? Last week, I gave you some things to consider on the subject. Let me give you a few more, but before I do, I wanna remind you, and I think anybody will support this. In the Greek, the word pneuma for spirit is never ever capitalized. You'll never see spirit capitalized in the Greek. It's always a lower case. I mention this because by capitalizing the H in holy and the S in spirit, it has helped people believe the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person like Jesus, capital J, Christ, and God, capital G. What is the Holy Spirit? It is a gift from God. Listen, God is holy, hagias, and God is spirit, pneuma. God is holy, hagias, God is spirit, pneuma. God, hagias, pneuma, uppercase if you will, is the giver of gifts, including hagias, pneuma, lowercase, his spirit. He is the giver of gifts, his spirit, okay? And therefore it's holy spirit. We cannot ever confuse the giver of a gift, God, with the gifts he gives, his spirit, which is holy. So let me go through some points. Number one, every individual has a spirit within them. The Bible uses terms like soul, suke, and spirit, pneuma, interchangeably sometimes. For instance, in Psalms 42.5, we read David say, why art thou cast down Oh, my soul. Okay, he refers to the internal spirit base within him, my soul. But in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus says to his sleeping disciples, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We can see that regarding man, there is spirit soul within us, okay? I would suggest that the spirit of a man bears the same relation to the man as the Spirit of God bears relation to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says it clearly. 
but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. That should be a lowercase s, by the way. Yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man? Save the spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. That should be a lowercase s. I would suggest that as the spirit of man is not another person distinct from himself, the spirit in me is not distinct from me, it is himself and it is indistinguishable from me, so is the spirit of God another, another person distinct from God. As the spirit of man means the man himself, the essence of man, his mind, so to speak, so the spirit of God means God himself with his essence being spirit. Isaiah 40, 13 asks, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor has taught him? Was Isaiah speaking of the Lord Yahweh or a spirit person there? In what I believe is a parallel verse, Paul seems to quote in Romans eleven thirty four. Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I wonder if just as the mind of a man is not his fleshly body, but his spirit soul, if the Holy Spirit of God is the same, the mind of God, just a thought. Second point. In John 14, 7, we read about the spirit of truth. The King James puts a capital S on that and in uh, making him in a Trinitarian view, a person by calling it the spirit of truth, capital S, the third person of the Godhead. Now try to stay with me. In that verse, the Greek for spirit of truth is written pneuma aletheia. Okay, that's spirit of truth, pneuma aletheia, which I believe is the spirit of God non-persona, not a person. I say this because 1 John 4, 6, John again uses that phrase, the spirit of truth, pneuma aletheia, with lowercase s, and the same line, and in the same line, he talks about the spirit of error, lowercase s, which is also uh, the same thing, a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. What I'm trying to say is if the spirit of truth is an actual person, then so is the spirit of error. But that's not the case. It's simply not the case in this passage. Each of these spirits represents an influence or a power under which a person acts, truth or error. But neither of those spirits, truth or error, is a person in that sense. Point number three. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul directly opposes the spirit of the world against the spirit which is of God. So Paul takes those two and he puts them against each other in a dialectic. As the spirit of the world is not a person separate from the world, okay, neither is the spirit of God a person separate from God. Each is the power or influence coming out of the source of origin, God or the world, but not persons. The world has a spirit. Is it a person? No, it's a world spirit. God has a spirit. Is it a person? No, it's the spirit of God. And Paul puts them in combat against each other. Point four, we also know that the breath of God and spirit of God in scripture are used synonymously. Admittedly, with God, it's possible that he takes his breath and he formed it into a separate person. I, I guess you could stretch that. Similar to him taking his word, as he spoke it pre-creation, and turned it into his son. But to me, God's breath and words are all from him, manifestations of him, relating and interacting with humanity since he cannot directly being removed somehow because of his fiery holiness. Point five, I would also suggest it makes no sense to call the Holy Spirit an uncreated person and at the same time refer to the Holy Spirit as the breath of God. How could God's breath simultaneously be an uncreated person co-equal with God existing forever in a three-person 
singular Godhead called the Trinity. Point six, it seems crazy likewise to call a co-equal and co-eternal person the hand and finger of God as scripture does of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we think about it, the hand or the finger of God would be um, subordinate to God, wouldn't they? The hand or finger of God would be in God's control. And so to call the Holy Spirit the hand or finger of God makes sense. God is the one who is using this, his spirit as the hand and his finger. Just another instance where scripture does not support the Holy Spirit as a separate being or person. God sends his spirit to do his will like a man will use his hand or spirit to do his hand or fingers to do his will. It's the same picture. Point seven. In scripture, the line spirit of your father is synonymous with the Holy Spirit and is said to speak of for us, when we get into a place that, for instance, if I was called before a king, it is said the spirit of the, of the father or the spirit of the son will teach me what to say, okay? For example, in Luke 21, 15, we read Christ and he says, he will give us a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. He tells this to his apostles. Don't worry about it. Go there. You'll be given a mouth and wisdom. We notice that Luke does not write that a person called the Holy Ghost will be speaking through them, but they will be inspired by a supernatural power of God from God and Christ to speak as they would speak. That's why the writer doesn't use the Holy Spirit there. He says you will be given this mouth and wisdom, which will confound all your adversaries. Point eight, Trinitarianism claims that the spirit is sentient meaning he's able to sense, be grieved, etc., and that's true, and is self-aware, separate and distinct with a personality, and he's male, so he is a male personality who thinks and has a separate entity but is in one God. I'm not sure Jesus understood this take when he said in Matthew 11:27, no man, Holy Spirit included, knows the Son, but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father, save the Son. If the Holy Spirit is a male person distinct from the Father and is also omniscient and almighty, then wouldn't Jesus have included him in the mix of what he just said in Matthew 11, but he leaves him out completely. He leaves it out completely. Again, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says that no one, no person knew the hour of his second coming except the Father. How could the person of the Holy Spirit be kept in the dark about this very important event to happen? Are we supposed to believe that it's possible for one member of the Godhead to keep a secret from the other member excluding Jesus because Jesus is on earth in a body of flesh. So the Father and the Holy Spirit, both persons or beings are up there, but the Holy Spirit who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father is not privy to the information. Or was Jesus right in saying, hey, listen, no one knows the hour except the Father and he doesn't need to include the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not a person. Think about that. Look, the excuses that people make up are stretches that men use to make their doctrines make sense. I trust the Bible. I trust Jesus when he says, no man but the Father knows the hour, I believe it. And if someone suggests that the Father is keeping secrets from the co-equal person of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna cry foul. Listen, if God is three co-equal persons, as the Trinitarians claim, the third person can no more be the spirit of the first person than the first person can be the spirit of the third person. And I know that's getting convoluted, but it's true. To avoid such absurdity, we have to admit that the spirit, lowercase s, of God does not have a separate personality, but must be the power and influence, sufficiency, and fullness, uh, some extension of God who is the one true God, point nine. First John four thirteen says, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of 
his spirit. This sounds like the Holy Spirit can be divided up, split up, moved around in different places. God took the spirit that was on Moses and he divided it up among the seven uh, elders, seven, 70 elders of Israel, okay? Joel prophesied that God would pour out part or some of his spirit, some, upon the day of Pentecost, which he did. But the point is the spirit of God is divisible and can be portioned out among the inhabitants of the earth. This makes sense when we view the spirit of God as his breath and power coming from him, but not as a person. It does not make sense when, they, when we add that the Holy Spirit is a person or personage or separate being. Point 10, the Bible purposely uses very figurative language for the Holy Spirit to show that it is the invisible influence and power of God. God sends his spirit to come into our lives, to comfort us, to help us, to teach us, to bring us to Christ, to unite us, to anoint us for the work which he's called us to do. Scripture purposely uses imagery like liquid and wind to describe the spirit of God, saying we are baptized, literally dipped within it like water. That's in Matthew, that we are all made to drink of the same spirit as a well or from a fountain, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that it's been written on our heart in ink. That's in 2 Corinthians 3, 3. We are anointed with it like oil, 2 Corinthians 1, 21. We are sealed with it like melted wax. That's Ephesians 1, 13. It is poured out on us, poured out on us, Acts 10, 45. It's measured as if it has volume, John 3, 34. We are filled with it, Acts, 3, uh, Acts 2, 4. And this filling is that capacity when we're born again to overflowing when we are obedient to God's will in our lives, Okay. Even the use of the spirit as wind implies fluidity and motion and a moving, not a person, but the power, the dunamis of God that pours out from him as a gift to us from the giver. Not this separate Trinitarian fourth century person that wasn't decided upon until that time. He is God's, it is God's gift to us. By definition, the spirit of God is derived from God. What comes from God as its source cannot also be God. Nothing and no one can be both the source of a thing and the thing itself. There is a great difference between the giver and the gift uh, that he is giving. Point 11. The Bible synonymously uses the terms Holy Spirit with God. In Acts 5.3, this is used a lot by Trinitarians to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person also God, Peter says to Ananias that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, should be lowercase. Then in verse four, Peter says that he lied to God. I would say that's true. But by uppercase Holy Spirit, it sounds like he's lying to a person. But lowercase Holy Spirit, uh, Peter says, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit, lowercase. You have lied to God. That makes sense, you see. But when they add the uppercase in the Trinitarian notion, we have a person. 12.12 is a big one. Listen to it. This one alone ought to make you think. We say that Jesus is the son of God, but Luke says that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is a separate person, male, then wouldn't Jesus be the son of the Holy Spirit? and not the Son of God? But if the Holy Spirit is simply, listen, how Luke describes him as the power of the Most High, overshadowing Mary, that's how Luke describes him, Luke 135, we can see that the Holy Spirit is the power of God and not a person of the Trinity. Trinitarianism leads far too much unnecessary confusion with its assertions that the Holy Spirit is a separate person. And that example right there, if the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived and the Holy Spirit is a separate distinct being, Jesus is the son of the Holy Spirit, not a son of the Father. And we have a problem in that. Point 13, additionally, 
and this isn't truly a clear point that I can make, but I'll, I'm just going to touch on it. The Holy Spirit is used synonymously and interchangeably with the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Those are all lines found in the New Testament. In these examples, the Spirit is described as the mind and power of Christ. Christ and the Father, absolutely. They are sending, the Father sends a spirit. Christ says he'll send the spirit, both interchangeable. The spirits throughout scripture, Jesus is the mind of the spirit. The mind of the spirit is Jesus, back and forth. We see as Christ our mediator, it makes great sense. With this in mind, look how the clear relationship exists between Christ and the spirit. You ready? In Acts 16, six, in the midst of the work Paul was called to do, the Holy Spirit kept Paul and his companions from preaching in Asia. Then in the next verse, we read that the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter into another city. It's synonymous. It's the spirit of Jesus now going out. Uh, one and the same. Second Corinthians three seventeen and 18 says, the Lord Jesus is the spirit. That's what it says. The Lord Jesus is the spirit. He has been invested with all spiritual authority and power to effectively carry out his responsibility as the head of this, his own body. By his spirit, he is able to guide and direct many servants. 2 Corinthians 12, 18. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 lists the fruit of the spirit, which is what Jesus' nature was, love, coinciding with John 15, 5, where Jesus says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Jesus, the spirit of Jesus bears the fruit of the spirit. And then Jesus gives a parable saying, listen, abide in me and I abide in you and you will produce much fruit. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says we are sanctified by the spirit. And 1 Corinthians 1.12 says we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, tomb, whom God made to be sanctification for us. We have it synonymously used. We know that scripture calls the spirit of truth parakletos. You know that. The spirit of truth parakletos. The Catholics call the Holy Spirit the paraclete. Okay, there's, there's the Greek. I think that's Greek. And then we have, um, it's speaking of Jesus, we have an advocate with the Father. You know what the word is there? Parakletos. Same thing, okay? Again, we are strengthened by the spirit of the inner man, Ephesians 3.16. The next verse says that Christ dwells in our hearts, inner man, uh, Ephesians 3.17. Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father by the spirit, lowercase s. And then Ephesians 3.12 says, in Christ and through in him, we have access with confidence to God. Same message. Romans 8.26 says the spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 says Christ Jesus intercedes for us. Same spirit. From the mouth of God came God's word, which became flesh. From the mouth of God comes his breath, the Holy Spirit. Here's one, the giver, the one God who so loved the world, gifted us with his son the word made flesh, and then as a means to draw all men to his son, the giver gifted us with his pneuma, his Holy Spirit, his hagios pneuma, gifts to God to redeem them. Not a person, but the gift God gives. Point 15, we're almost done. The Holy Spirit is never worshiped in the scripture as, as a father and son are. No verse of scripture commands such worship of the Holy Spirit. It's, I think this is quite surprising if the Holy Spirit is truly co-equal and co-eternal member of the triune God that he is not, no one is commanding us to worship him. If God is worthy of worship and God exists in three persons, then shouldn't each God person be worthy of worship? If so, why isn't this found in scripture? Finally, have you ever noticed that in all the openings of Paul's epistles, 10 epistles, every one of them, he identifies himself with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All 10 of his epistles. Why? Either he, why not the Holy Spirit? He was either ignorant of the truth of the Trinity or the Trinitarian God, and he forgot to include the Holy Spirit in those introductions. Every introduction, he greets us in the name of God the Father and Jesus Christ, but never the Holy Spirit. But he didn't forget. He knew the Holy Spirit was the gift 
of God, from God, not a separate entity to mention in the same breath with the Father and the Son. The one apostle who does mention the Holy Spirit is Peter. This is what he wrote in the introduction of 1 Peter 1-2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, that's an uppercase S, unto obedience and sprinkling of blood Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. But you know what, that uppercase S should never be. It should be a lowercase S and then it makes sense. Making it uppercase automatically puts him in the only place in the introductions of the epistles as a person. Paul in the church epistles, always God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, never the Holy Spirit in any of his epistle introductions. If the Holy Spirit is an integral and personal part of a triune God that is a personal being, then why doesn't Paul add his personal greetings as well? The only good answer is that Paul was not a Trinitarian. If there was a third person involved, wouldn't Paul surely have known about it and included him in the greetings to the churches? Interestingly enough, when Paul actually does include additional persons in his introductions, he includes angels, elect angels, but never the Holy Spirit. How come Revelation 21, 22, John describes Jesus sitting on the throne, God the Father sitting on the throne, not a mention of the Holy Spirit. Not a mention in that. How come the Holy Spirit wasn't sitting on the throne too and John didn't mention it there? Listen, we're never gonna bridge the gap between the LDS and the Christian churches as long as we have such things wrong in our own house. As long as we are trying to convince people to worship, the one true God and the one Son, Jesus Christ, and then add the Holy Spirit as a person, we're never going to see a bridge between that. When people begin to worship God in spirit and in truth, we can then expect the Mormons and the Buddhists and the Muslims come along too. Until then, division is gonna reign. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing your call, your well-thought-out, clear-minded, concise calls. I recently learned online that a local church here in Utah excommunicated a couple, members in their church. The reason? The couple had the audacity to ask why the church was giving 1% of the total donations to the poor and why the church was paying uh, all paid vacations for the pastor. For that, they held a, uh, some kind of church trial and the couple was summarily excommunicated. Now, I think the people had the right to ask, how come only 1%? And I think the church had the right to answer any way they want and to say, this is how we do it. If you don't like it too bad, but to excommunicate people, to tell the other congregates, do not talk to this couple. Uh, there's something seriously wrong. Apparently, the brethren of the church uh, believed it was right. Cassidy has prepared a, prepared a video song presentation to speak to this type of baloney. I hope you get it right. Abortionists are murderers. Therefore, abortionists should be executed. Somebody said, who are you going to vote for? I ain't going to vote for a baby killer and a homosexual lover. We say no more, devil, no more. Say it, boys and girls, in the name of Jesus. You know exactly what you need to repent of. Name it. Name it out loud.
We have a question from Drew in Stanford, Virginia. Do you think that the Jehovah's Witness belief in the Holy Spirit is more than Christians? The typist is not done. Is more than Christians' belief. The typist has been drinking. The question does not... First of all, I don't know what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I've never read the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, if they believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and not a person, then I would agree with the, Holy, the Jehovah's Witnesses on that point. I don't agree with uh, Charles Taz Russell or William, whatever his name was, and, and all that stuff. You know, because somebody's wrong in most areas, it's like the LDS. The LDS have some things right. And, uh, you know, it's really myopic thinking and narrow-mindedness to... Th to throw everything they say out. A lot of their stuff, obviously, is baloney, and we go after that stuff. So, but if the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that, I believe that's what the Bible says too. So you could say in that area, I would agree. Uh, line three is a caller from Hong Kong. I think I know who this is. I've never met him, but John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? John, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good. How you doing, John? Good. I've watched your show for quite a while. Um, I'm still LDS. I'm hanging on by a thread, but uh, <laughs> um, I just you when you were talking about the Holy Spirit, I just remember reading something. I just wanted to call in and and see what your opinion on it was. Uh, the lectures of faith that used to be part of the Doctrine and Covenants until like 1920 or something when they took it out, they actually said there they wrote about the Holy about God and because Joseph Smith originally, I think, uh, believed in one God and then switched to, to two personages and then to multiplicity of gods. But at this point, he said, uh, the Father being a spirit, uh, personage of spirit, glory, and power, possessing all perfection and fullness, the Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, is a personage of tabernacle. He is called, he is called the Son because of the flesh possessing and this is part possessing the mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit that bears record of the Father and the Son. These three are one. Yeah, I would kind of. Uh, I would I would uh, concur much much closer to that than I would uh, some of the Trinitarian views. Even though I know that that was has since been abandoned by the LDS, those are Joseph Smith's original thoughts back in that time. And, uh, and he progressed out of that, or, or digressed out of that. But I would think that's a very good summary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you think? That's all I had. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, it, for me, the, trini the Trinity is kind of hard to understand being LDS. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and this, this, this statement made a lot of sense to me, uh, the explanation for it. But uh, yeah. I know we don't know really believe that now. <laughs> right. But, uh, I wish they would have stuck <laughs> to that one. <laughs> hey, great call, John. Thanks so much for calling all the way from Hong Kong. Yeah, no problem. Good luck. Uh, right. Keep up the good work. Thanks, John. Bye. Listen, I know that's going to disturb people to hear me say that, but, uh, you know, we, we have to kind of just knock off all the rhetoric to say my camp is completely right, your camp is completely wrong. That Joseph Smith, he morphed out of his ideas of the ontology of God all the way out to God becoming a man, and he went way out. God suddenly became a man in a human body. But if you go back to some of the earlier thoughts, remember he came from Christianity. He studied the Bible. His parents were Christians. He went to the revivals. He probably had a very sound understanding at one point of what it was, and that was a fairly good, in my opinion, uh, uh, estimation. Of course, he, he went south, and we, we don't agree with that. Uh, let's go to uh, Dave and Murray, and then we're going to go to Drew. Dave on line two. Dave, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how's it going? Going good, Dave. How are you? Doing fine. Got a couple questions for you. Yeah. I understand your topic, and, and I agree with what you're saying, and, and it makes sense. I am kind of hung up on, uh, on the Great Commission. Uh, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm looking at my Bible, they're capitalized, I understand that, but I wonder, you know, why would you baptize in the name of, of the Spirit? Well, there's a couple things on that, and um, in fact, we actually have the verse. You want to put that up, Merle? I don't know if it's read, it's the one I said, let's just hold off on that. Um, what it is is this. Let me just look at my notes here. 
Go ye therefore, teach all nations the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, and the King James, the Holy Ghost. Uh, this verse is quoted in different forms by the early church fathers. Eusebius, by the way, he quotes that verse 18 times as baptizing them in my name, meaning Christ is saying to the apostles, baptizing them in my name. This could be a Johannine. We have an example in the uh, uh, epistles of John where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inserted in a place where the oldest and original manuscripts do not have that. So you okay. see, Eusebius seems to be saying, Jesus says, baptizing them in my name. And the reason that this makes some sense is because we know in the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles, they only baptized in the name of Jesus. And so uh, there could be something to that. The, this is the stronghold, actually, Dave. It's a great question for the Trinitarians because of the Great Commission and how it's written there in Matthew. I understand. I'm kind of trying to look at all the old documents, but I don't have them right in front of me, so it makes it hard. So I'm just assuming that uh, Holy Spirit is probably not capitalized in the Greek version and some of the later manuscripts and probably not even existing in the old, old ones. Might, might not, but we're, we're certain it was, he wasn't holy, uh, he wasn't holy capitalized. He wasn't capitalized. Okay, very good. Question two, if you got time, is, yeah. uh, you know, I uh, came out of Mormonism probably a couple years ago, and so having been kind of fooled once, you know, taking things on faith, you gotta, you know, kind of look for some more hard evidence than you had before. And so when you say you gotta take things on faith, um, that's easy to say, but you still got to have something to hold on to so you don't get fooled again. You absolutely do. And I, I am not talking about uh, archaeological or genetic or linguistic uh, artifacts and the ancient manuscripts and things like that, Dave. I'm talking about the, the faith-promoting stuff that's not validated. I, I can't stand the stuff because in the end, it hurts our walk. But absolutely, faith is predicated upon evidences. We, we have evidences. We look at the facts. We place our faith in those facts. And then we have feelings about the facts that we've placed our faith in. It's not feelings first. So absolutely look at the hard evidence, challenge everything. I do not believe our God is so weak that he can't take challenges. The seeking heart finds truth. It's those who grab something and cling to it that have given up and waved the white flag. So search, Dave, search and look. If your heart is open to truth, he'll never let you, let, let, lead you astray. I, I believe that he led me out, so there's no doubt about that. I've you know, got some things going on to where I've, I've got the faith I need. I'm kind of more concerned about you know, those that I love and that kind of thing, but just kind of tying it together. Um, so if you got, you know, in my hands this nice Bible and I'm reading it and there's something right there in the Great Commission that isn't correct, it can kind of cause people to, to doubt. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's, that's part of the problem with uh, demanding certainty is that um, what we've done is we've said, listen, we got to take this as it's been handed down to us and out of fear, we cling to tradition and we say, no, 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 this is how it's always been. We can't let it go. And I don't believe the Holy Spirit works that way. I think, that, I think by letting the Holy Spirit work through you as you're reading the scripture, your eyes will be open to greater and greater truths and tradition will fall to the, uh, to the wayside. And so I think you're right. Men will establish uh, platforms of certainty to make sure everybody feels secure and right. But I, I, you know, there's only a few things upon which I can stand with complete certainty. And that is, I, I personally stand on complete certainty that Jesus is who he said he was, that God exists, and, and, and uh, he did the, the work for our salvation. I can stand on it. Everything else, I don't see a reason to worry about it except to move forward and try to discover more truth. Yeah. Hey, I'm with you, Sean. So appreciate hey, all you do, buddy. Hey, Dave. Dave? Yes, sir. You're in Murray. Why don't you come over and join us at campus on Sundays? I've been there a couple times. Oh, well, nice to meet you. <laughs> yes, you too. I'll say hi again, okay? All right, man. See you later. Bye. I don't recognize Dave's voice. We're going to Drew in Stanford, Virginia, um, on line three, which is not blinking. Again, our operators smoking and drinking back there. We're going to... No, we have a one and we have a neither one.
Okay, listen, I want to cover this. I think we're running out of time, and it's important I cover it. Um, since we took down the disgrace book last week, there's been some fallout. There's been a lot of angry feelings. Uh, people have said that uh, we've supported Sean McCraney on Facebook, and, and he has dropped us, and he has left us in the lurch, and um, all these things. I just want you to know, one, I have never petitioned for a web community to support me. I've never tried to say, hey, you know, get on Facebook. I've done it once uh, with Wendy. I said, go on Facebook and do this, I believe, if, I, if memory serves. But I've never tried to uh, lasso, or lasso the, uh, the community on the internet to get behind me and promote the shows or anything else. I've let it have a life of its own. If you feel dropped by me, it's your fault for, being, for following me in the first place. You follow the Lord Jesus, and, and you can establish another community out there that will support you in your endeavors, but you're not going to get it from me. I don't agree with that, and here's why. I call it disgrace book for a reason. Not because it's a disgrace to be uh, on there, but the things that go on there lack grace. They lack grace. We look at, uh, and if you read the Bible, the Bible warns us against ego. Disgrace book is everybody telling their egotistical thing, where they've traveled, what's happening. The good stuff. You don't see someone say, yeah, I got herpes last night from sinning on accident. Sorry, no, you hear all these glorious things. You hear boasting. You hear, uh, you hear um, pride. You hear backbiting. You hear vanity. You hear people attacking each other over attendance, uh, over single words. You hear the ugliest, see the ugliest things that can imagine. So let me give you a parable and we'll wrap it up with this. Imagine that this, this ministry inherits a bar, a topless bar, okay? And that topless bar makes a ton of money. And man, we are getting money flowing into the ministry and we're able to send out more books and we're able to get our shows on more stations. And man, that topless bar is really doing a lot. And it's a great place for people to get together and have community. And it's a great people to come together and talk. And it's a great place for, you know, I know a guy who came out of Mormonism who went into our topless bar and he started talking with one of our managers there who's a Christian and man, they came around to know the Lord. Do you understand that it's in a topless bar? Do you understand that the whole premise behind it, the guy who originated Facebook, the guy was morally corrupt. So I don't personally, my daughters are part of it, other people I know and love are part of it, but I personally do not appreciate the spirit that comes with it that goes with this ministry, just like people wouldn't appreciate our ministry owning a topless bar. Can the good things come out of the topless bar? Sure. Can good things come out of Facebook? Of course, community. You know when the party's gonna be. You know that someone was saved. You can, but there is so much bad with it. Our ministry has said, we are gonna pull away. We are not gonna capitalize on this and justify it because people can get together and talk, all right? So I want you to know that individually, whoever you are, even you people who rip me up online, I love you. If I met you, I would sit and talk with you do whatever I can, even the people I really don't like at all. I'm going to love you, and we're going to get along, but uh, I'm not going to go the way you want with that deal, and if you want to pout and call me names and say I deserve this and I'm a heretic, and all, go ahead, do what you're going to do. We're going to continue on and try our best to bring forth truth here on Heart of the Matter. We'll see you next week. I'm on the ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 